Over the last two Sundays, uh, Pastor Andy has taken us very carefully and thoughtfully through James chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, which Joel read just a few minutes ago. In that passage, James tells us that faith without works is useless. Verse 19. He says, faith without works is dead. Verse 26. And so, Pastor Andy said to us last Sunday, true faith reveals itself in bold, self-sacrificing obedience. That was the main thought last Sunday. True faith reveals itself in bold, self-sacrificing obedience. Pastor Andy has also commented how the book of James, in many ways, seems like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And so today we'll take a brief side trip away from James to look at what Jesus says at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Would you please turn in your Bible to Matthew 7:13. Matthew 7 verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, as I said earlier, there's some on the back table. It's page 901 in that Bible. We'll read Matthew 7 verses 13 to 29 and then focus in particular on verses 21 to 27. Before I read this, let me tell you a little bit about the context. The whole sermon on the mount Jesus is making a contrast between two ways. Chapter 5 is a contrast between the teaching of two ways. As six times in chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard, and then he follows it by, But I say to you. Matthew 5.21 You have heard that the ancients were told. Verse 22 But I say to you. Matthew 5.27 You have heard that it was said. Verse 28 but I say to you. Verse 31. And it was said. Verse 32. But I say to you. And that pattern continues three more times in the chapter as Jesus is making a contrast between the typical and often hypocritical teaching of his day and what he teaches. And then in chapter 6, the contrast moves from the teaching to the doing. As Jesus makes a contrast between how the hypocrites give in verse 2, and how his followers should give in verse 3. And then he makes a contrast between how the hypocrites pray in verse 4 or verse 5, and how his followers should pray in verse 6. And he follows that with a contrast between how the Gentiles pray, verse 7, and how his followers should pray in verse 8, and that leads to the teaching of the Lord's Prayer, beginning in verse 9. And then he makes a contrast between how the hypocrites fast in verse 16, and how his followers should fast in verse 17. You see how it's constantly a contrast between two ways. Chapter 5, a contrast in the teaching of the two ways. Chapter 6, a contrast in the doing or the living of the two ways. And chapter 7 that we come to today is a contrast in the destiny of these two ways. As I read verses 13 to 29, watch for two ways. Two trees, two kinds of people, and in each case, notice the difference in the destiny. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 13. Jesus is speaking. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. 
Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, yet it did not fall. For it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, The multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Old sermon's a contrast. Contrast between the teaching of two ways, a contrast between the living and the doing of two ways, and finally a contrast in the destiny of these two ways. And this is very important for us to understand today because in many circles... Evangelical circles, there is confusion about what it means to be saved. What it means that your destiny is heaven. And it's the same confusion that James is correcting in James chapter 2. For example, a well-known Christian evangelist and author, a name that if I were to name it, you would all recognize, once visited an elderly lady who had been his mother's roommate in college many years before. His mother had passed away, and he was seeking some assurance about his mother's salvation. So he asked the lady, Did my mother ever show any interest in spiritual things? Yes, she replied. When we were in college, your mother went forward at an altar call in a gospel meeting. At those words, the evangelist writes, My heart leapt with joy. I was walking in the air. Finally, I knew with certainty of my mother's salvation. That is how many people have been taught to understand salvation. The man considered his mother saved, not by any report of a changed life, not by any any evidence of a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, not by faith that works, not by good fruit, but only a single event. In this case, walking forward at an altar call. And by and large, this sort of thing has been the dominant teaching in American Christianity for the last 70 years. To be saved. Walk this aisle. Pray this prayer. Confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Now to be certain, confessing that Jesus is Lord is good and right and true. A simple prayer of repentance and confession is absolutely imperative for a transformed life. But based on the words of James, James chapter 2, based on the Sermon on the Mount and the words of Jesus, we've gone too far. We see in verses 13 and 14 a contrast between a narrow gate and a wide gate. And the destiny of those who enter through the wide gate is destruction, not life. Then there's this contrast between two trees, verses 15 to 20. The good tree that bears good fruit and the bad tree that bears bad fruit. And the destiny of the bad tree is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. The bad tree, of course, represents those wolves in sheep's clothing, those false prophets of verse 15. But as we come to verse 21, where we're going to start our focus this morning, Jesus turns from the false prophets to the false believers. This is a solemn warning for us all. Just as there will be false prophets, there will also be self-deceived false believers. We cannot claim to know Jesus Christ and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and still live like there is no God. In these verses, Jesus teaches one fundamental truth in three ways. The profession of Christ without the practice of Christ is pointless and eternally perilous. The profession of Christ without the practice of Christ, without living for Christ, is pointless and eternally perilous. It does not save us. First of all, that is taught by principle in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you have heard me speak before, you know that I encourage you to mark in your Bible. I would encourage you to circle two words in verse 21. Circle the word says, and then the word does. At the gates to the kingdom of heaven, you will not be judged on what you say, but what you have done. Doesn't that sound a lot like James 1.22? But prove yourselves doers of the word and not hearers who deceive themselves. If our life does not match our words, which one does the Lord listen to? Our life. If someone professes Christ but does not practice Christ, he or she is not saved and is not entering the kingdom of heaven. He's on that broad road which is leading to destruction. You say, wait a minute. The Bible teaches that we're saved by faith. How do we square salvation by faith with these words of our Lord, or for that matter, with the words of James in James chapter 2? There are two opposite errors to avoid here. The first is that we're saved by works. That if, if somehow we're good enough, that God will be merciful upon us. And that is absolutely unbiblical. Romans chapter 3, for example, says there is none righteous. There is not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We do not have it in ourselves without Christ 
to live a good life. We do not have it in ourselves without Christ to seek God. And so the scriptures are clear through and through that we are not saved by by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace we are saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. The opposite error. The more prevalent error, I fear, in evangelical Christianity, is that since we're saved by faith, that no commitment and no obedience is necessary. And that is to what James says, faith without works is useless. Faith without works is dead. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Saving faith is a transforming faith. Saving faith will transform our lives to obedience to Jesus Christ. Dead faith cannot save us, and it cannot change our life. Profession of Christ without the practice of Christ, living for Christ, living in obedience to the word of God. Profession of Christ without the practice of Christ is pointless and eternally perilous. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. I love the way Jesus teaches. It's not abstract. It's not some deep, Philosophy that's so hard to understand. child can follow this. He teaches us principle. And then in case we don't get the principle, he gives us an example. Look at verses 22 and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. After teaching the principle, verse 21, Jesus here paints a picture. But before we look at the details of this picture, this example, look at the background. Look what he says at the very beginning of verse 22. Many will say to me, on that day. What day? What is he talking about? That day is the day of judgment. It is also called in the Bible the Lord's Day. It is the day about which Acts 17.31 says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M, Jesus, whom he has appointed. When we see the words that day in scripture without any obvious antecedent, without any clear reference, it is most likely talking about that day, the Lord's Day. I don't know when it will be. You don't know when it will be, but someday, that day will arrive, and we will all be judged. Now, here we have an amazing statement from Jesus. The people were amazed at his teaching, it says, because he taught as one having authority. Look at what Jesus says on that day, verse 22. On that day, many will say to Me. Not to God. To me. Verse 23. I will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus Christ right there declares that he will be the judge of the whole world. That's teaching with authority. You can never say 
that Jesus was just a good man. He was a moral teacher. He was a great teacher, but just a good man. Because good men don't go around claiming that the whole world is going to answer to them on the day of judgment. Either he was a lunatic with delusions of grandeur, or he is God Almighty because he says that every man and woman on this planet will answer to him on the day of judgment. Many will say to me, says Jesus, who will you face on the day of judgment? You'll be standing before Jesus. That's the background to the picture. People are standing before Jesus Christ and they are begging. They are pleading with him, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? In your name did we not cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? Three times they say, in your name. And in the original language, that phrase, in your name, comes first every time. For emphasis, in your name, in your name, in your name. But the Lord judges them not by what they said, but what they did in verse 23. Before we look at verse 23, though, think a little bit about their profession in verse 22. First of all, their profession is respectful. These are not the people who are spitting on Jesus. These are not the people who are cursing Jesus. These are not people blaspheming Jesus. They address him as Lord. It's a title of great respect and honor. It's a respectful profession. Second, it's an orthodox profession. The word Lord is a title of respect. But when it is repeated twice, Lord, Lord, it is a title of deity. The Hebrews, out of awe for the divine name Yahweh, would not say it. Even when they were reading the Bible and they came to those four Hebrews letters, they would not say it. They would simply say Lord. And in many cases they would say Lord, Lord, or Lord of Lords, because that is a title that he is the absolute and final and only true Lord. That's orthodox. That's true. Their confession third is fervent. Three times, with great passion, they appeal to the name of Jesus Christ. Naming the name of Jesus Christ means nothing without obedience to Jesus. Fourth, their confession is public. These are not closet Christians who were afraid to name the name of Jesus Christ and were trying to practice their faith in a closet. These are people who are out publicly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And fifth, their confession is spectacular. It is accompanied by miracles, exorcisms, and prophecies. If a profession of faith could save us, surely what better confession of faith or profession of faith could one give other than one that is fervent and public and spectacular and orthodox and respectful I'll tell you what better profession of faith one could give the profession of obedience the profession of practicing Christ because Jesus answers them based not on their profession but on their practice as he says verse 23 I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness. Just a little bit technical here. The word practice in the original Greek language is what's called a present tense participle. And that means it is speaking of continuous, ongoing, or habitual action. They are living a lifestyle of lawlessness. Profession of Christ and practice of lawlessness are contradictory. A good tree 
cannot bear bad fruit. Now, is Jesus saying that true Christians must be sinless? No. The issue here is not perfection, but direction. It's not perfection of life, it's the direction of life. He teaches us in the chapter right before this to pray, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us, because we do sin. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's not saying we need to be sinless. But what is the ongoing pattern of our life? Is it lawlessness? The Apostle Paul teaches the same thing. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10, he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous... It's another way of saying it. The people who practice lawlessness. Do you not know that the unrighteousness shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. In the context there, he is speaking to the church. Speaking about people within the church. And he says that those who continually practice these sins shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me be very specific. Let me be very clear. A man and a woman living together in a sexual relationship outside of marriage cannot claim to know Jesus Christ because they are living a lifestyle of fornication, or adultery, or both. One cannot continue to practice homosexuality and claim to be a Christian. That's lawlessness. Now, that is not politically correct. That is not a popular thing to say these days, but that is what the Bible says. It also says you cannot continue to steal, or be a drunkard, or a habitual liar. If you continually practice those things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And on the judgment day, you will hear those horrible words. Those terrible words, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you profess Christ, yet you practice lawlessness, you will spend an eternity apart from Christ. That is hell. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. The word never there is emphatic. It is intense. It means never at any time did Jesus know them. Of course he knew who they were, but he had not come to a relationship with them and them to him. They had never known Jesus. Galatians 5.21 says the same thing as it says about the deeds of the flesh, which are immorality drunkenness, carousing, outbursts of anger. Mm. That strikes close to home. Sorcery, strife, and many others. Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. My friends, I desire that every one of us here know Jesus Christ. And he know us. And because I desire that, I'm, 
I, I have to speak the hard truths of Scripture, not just the easy ones. And Pastor Andy is the same way. He tells us the hard truths and not just the nice ones. And the hard truth of Scripture is that it's not what you say that makes you a Christian. It is faith revealed by what you do. They say to him, Lord, Lord. He says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Luke 6.46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You cannot call Jesus Lord in any meaningful way unless you're willing to live like Jesus is Lord. When we study these verses, we come to this conclusion. We do not gain assurance of salvation by remembering our words. We do not gain assurance of salvation by walking an aisle. We cannot claim to be saved because of a prayer we once pray. We only have assurance of salvation because we see that our faith has transformed our hearts and our lives. Because profession of Christ without practice of Christ is pointless and eternally perilous. Jesus teaches us first by principle, verse 21. And then by an example, verses 22 and 23. And then by parable, verses 24 to 27. Look at the parable beginning in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. What is the first word in verse 24? Therefore. He's making a connection. He's talking about the same people in the same situation. Back in verse 13, Jesus tells us that there are two gates, two ways, two types of people, two destinations. Verses 15 to 20, there are two trees and two kinds of fruit. Now he tells about two men building two houses on two foundations, followed by two storms, ending in two results. The man who builds his house upon the sand is not the atheist. He is not the pagan. He is not the blasphemer. He is not the one who is spitting on or rejecting Jesus Christ. The man who builds his house on the sand is the one who thinks he follows Christ, but is self-deceived. He's the man who hears the truth, but does not act upon it. He's the man who says, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I do this other thing? Both of these men, in this parable, are outwardly members of the Christian community. Both hear the words of Jesus Christ. Both attend church. Both think they follow Christ. The real contrast is not whether they hear Christ's teaching, but whether they act on what they hear. Every one of us in our lives is a builder, building on one of two foundations. Building on our life on the rock means we build our life on the narrow way. We build our life on obedience to the words of Christ, even when it's hard. Building one's house on the rock means not only listening to the Lord, but out of gratitude for salvation, out of love for him, out of faith in Jesus Christ, 
We put his commands into practice by being doers of the word. On the other hand, building on the sand means we do it our way. The broad way, the easy way, what I think is really more important than what the Bible says. That's the broad way. That's the easy way. Both buildings look good until the storm comes. The storm stands for the day of judgment. The storm reveals the truth of the foundation. We can fool others. We can even fool ourselves, but we will not fool God on the day of judgment. I love the fact that Jesus taught with so many word pictures. You know, throughout the Bible, he speaks of sand and rocks. He speaks of fields and trees and birds and flowers and grain and seeds and, and so on. He speaks in common, everyday things that people can understand. These people all built their house out of stones, blocks. What's easier? Is it easier to build on the sand, which is nice and smooth and flat and can be raked out? Or is it easier to build on rocks which are uneven and hard and difficult? It's easier to build on the sand. Building your life on the sand is the wide gate. It's the broad way which leads to destruction. Building your life on the sand is doing what pleases you rather than self-sacrifice and love and obedience to God. You have a choice about where you build. You can build on sand or you can build on rocks. You don't have a choice about the storm. The storm will come. What will be the result in your life? It'll be, it will depend upon your foundation. Now, just a few thoughts about how we apply this. These words challenge every one of us to stop and think about our own lives. Every one of us, myself included. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. How do we test ourselves? Look at your life. No past experience. Not prophesying, not casting out demons, not performing miracles, not walking an aisle is evidence of salvation apart from a life of obedience of Christ, the practice of Christ. James says, prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. So I encourage you, have a prayer conversation with Jesus this week and ask him, Am I obeying you, Lord? How can I obey you more? If you truly belong to Christ, you will want to obey him out of love, out of faith. Ask him, do I need to obey you today by serving someone? Ask him, am I living a life of purity as you want me to, Lord? Is there someone I need to forgive as you command me to, Lord? Am I dealing honestly in my work or my business, Lord? Am I telling others the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised the third day as he commands us to? Ask Jesus if you're obeying him. Then ask him to help you obey him all the more. Pray that prayer of the old Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane who said, Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. That's the first application. Second, we need to change our evangelism and the way we talk about conversions. As I was preparing to preach on this passage, I read about a large city church that in one year claimed 28,000 conversions for Christ, resulting in 123 people being added to the church. 
28,000 people came forward walking the aisles. 123 began to obey Christ by worship and fellowship in the body of Christ. If we really believe what Jesus says here, let's not say that people got saved because they walk an aisle. Let's say that people are saved because we can see in their lives how their faith is transforming them from the inside out. Let us not assume that because somebody prays a prayer that they're truly a saved, like the Lord does, base conclusions on their lives, not on their lips. That's what James chapter 2 says as well. If we blindly believe that someone has been been saved by praying a prayer, when we don't see any fruit of obedience, when we don't see any good works in their life, it stops us from praying for their salvation. The devil likes that. Also stops us from witnessing to them because we think we're all, they're already saved. We need to witness to them. We need them to call them to we need to call them to repentance and obedience to Christ. And let's not offer false assurance to people either. Let's tell them the truth for their eternal sake. It is the loving thing to do. I'm not teaching that we enter the kingdom by good works, that we earn our salvation by somehow getting merit with God by being good. Jesus is not teaching that. The Bible does not teach that. Jesus is teaching here that those who are truly saved, those who have a faith that works, will show their faith by their lives of obedience. Profession of Christ without the practice of Christ is perilous, is pointless, and eternally perilous.